You're listening to the Q's Podcast, Episode 50. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Q's Podcast. We use this form as a means to talk to credit union industry leaders and cross-industry experts for a wide range of perspectives on trends and topics relevant to you. I'm your host, James Lenz, Q's Professional Development Manager. In today's episode, we'll explore Influence in the Boardroom with John Esch. John is Associate Professor Teaching Stream at Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, as well as faculty at the Q's Governance Leadership Institute. Make plans now to attend Q's Governance Leadership Institute, June 10th through the 13th at Joseph L. Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. For more information about the program and how to register, visit qs.org slash GLI. New this year, we are offering a stateside Q's Governance Leadership Institute All the terrific GLI staff in Toronto will be heading south to lead the program at Florida International University. It takes place very soon, April 15th through the 18th. There are still opportunities to sign up, check out all the great educators, and examine the agenda. To find out more and register for GLI at Florida International University, please visit qs.org slash GLIUSA to learn more. In this interview, we'll focus on factors that influence the decision-making in your boardroom, roles of the board chair, some of the pitfalls and traps that boardrooms are falling into in making decisions, solutions to avoid those pitfalls and traps, keys to ensure the board sparks constructive dialogue, and an examination of board member underperformance and the best ways to aid an underperforming board member. Here's my interview with John Esch. Thanks for joining us on the show, John. My pleasure to be here, James. Let's start off the show with a little bit of inspiration. John, do you have a favorite success quote or mantra that you live by professionally? Well, when I'm dealing with, uh, with boards of directors and my client organizations and some of the governance training we do here, I do have a couple of zingers that I leave with them. You know how academics rarely answer yes-no questions with a yes or a no? We often default to our, it depends, and lots of things about what it depends. When people ask me, you know, should we start a board decision process by going around the table and taking a straw poll, I look them in the eye and I say, do not take a poll at the beginning of a decision process. Do not take a poll. Folks will often start thinking or even saying, well, what about and what if? Nope. Do not start your decision process with a poll. And the other one is that, you know, as the board chair, you own the process making the decisions and the calls at the board level. You own the process, but the whole board owns the outcome, whether it's a plan or a decision or some sort of call that needs to be made. So for the chairs, you own the process, but the entire board own the outcome. Very nice. John, tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your work with the Rotman School of Management. I'm a, an associate professor here. I've been at the Rotman School coming on 20 years, and we have a, a large program here of teaching governance, various people who want to be on boards at the corporate level, at the not-for-profit level, at the small and medium enter- enterprise level, and we also do some, some more specialized governance training for particular organizations, such as the Credit Union Executive Society. 
We also have a couple of research institutes here for governance, and this has been a, a very nice complement to the research that I do and the, the interest I have in group decision making and conflict resolution and in organizational justice. So there's a group of us here that continue to work on this, and we, we continue to build our own teaching practice and, and our own uh, research. We're trying our best to make sure that we you know, disseminate some of the knowledge we create uh, through teaching in cooperation with various uh, organizations here in Canada and around the world, make sure that people who do want to be good directors and, and do want to be effective chairs of boards have some basis um, and some grounding, the knowledge and the skills that are required to do so. So that's some of what we're doing here, and that's part of my role in it. John, what are some of the things one can do to influence the decision-making process in the boardroom? Well, the first is, is simply making sure that everybody on the board, you know, in, in the boardroom agrees that there needs to be uh, some focus on process because we have this tendency, we being you and me and everybody else who, you know, is engaged in a busy life with important decisions to make, we have a tendency to sort of leap into solution mode. We're all very good at solving problems. And when we do this, we, we ignore the necessity of a defined process and we start looking at, well, I know what we could do. And someone else says, yeah, we could also do this or that. Next thing you know, you've got people talking about what they think might be best. And this skipping of a more rigorous process and, and jumping right into what the possible solutions might mean is very typical. And it's very tempting because it seems expeditious and it seems like it would be beneficial and let's get down to work and all those uh, sort of societal norm type uh, suggestions that keep creeping into our boardrooms. So the first thing is to make sure people understand that there needs to be a rigorous process and, and there is a recipe for this. And you know, like any other recipe, you can turn that recipe into something that you want. Uh, you can alter it based on ingredients, etc., and what you've got available must be standard nonetheless. The key points are there needs to be some discussion up front about what the criteria are for coming up with a plan or a decision or a choice. And if those criteria are already well known, then it's a simple, quick reminder of what the criteria are and how much each of them is worth. Then you share information, get as many voices, have expertise on this problem to put their expertise on the table so that everybody has it available to them. Uh, then you look at alternatives, review those alternatives, evaluate them against the criteria, and try and come up with the, the best possible choice that you can. Using a recipe like this, using some sort of a, a process that you can document does all sorts of good things for boards. Tends to lead to better choices, decisions, and plans. It also provides evidence of due diligence, and you know, no board is ever going to be chastised just because they made a bad choice as long as they've used a good decision process. We will make bad choices. We won't make many of them, but when we make them, we'll own them because we will have done our due diligence. We'll have looked at all the alternatives that we should have. We'll have you know, reviewed them against criteria and shared all the information. And no one will be able to say, well, you didn't even discuss what you should have done because uh, good process takes care of those things. So that's the, the first thing. That's great advice because, you know, human nature or outside of the board discussions, we're all so often solution focused and we are looking at getting that solution out as soon as possible. But it's different in the boardroom. How do you see the role of the board chair in boardroom dynamics? Well, that's why... When you, I was happy that you asked me if I did have any sort of mantra to share. You know, the board needs to own that pro, the board chair needs to own that process. The, uh, the temptation 
for you know members of the board, and you picture a dozen people in a room with important things to do and a tight agenda, the temptation is to try to move things along and, and get into you know finishing agenda items with uh, that solution focus. So the board chair has to make decisions about which of the choices, decisions, or plans are high stakes enough to enact a, a more rigorous process. If it's approval, if it's reg regular approval stuff, then you know it's it's fine to move and approve. But if it's time for strategic planning, if it's time to make difficult choices about financing, if it's time to make you know important human resource uh, decisions, more rigorous process is required. So that that's the chair's job to ensure that we don't start by well, let's just go around the table and see what everybody thinks. Right. Because that is one of the worst things that can happen in a boardroom. And if you're up for it, I'm happy to explain some of the bad things that can happen if we take that sort of straw poll toward the beginning of a, of a decision process. Yeah, let's talk about that. What could happen as a result? Well, lots of people look at it and think, wow, there are lots of good things that can happen. You know, if everybody already agrees, then we're done. We're done without due diligence. Well, at least everybody will have a chance to speak. Yeah, we're going to ensure that everybody will get a chance to speak later on. It gives us a way to start the meeting. We can at least uh, kind of know where everybody stands, and, and we have a way to start the meeting. This is not uh, these, although sort of tempting um, reasons why you might want to start with a straw poll, they pale in comparison with the costs. And, and I'll just start with the first one. If we go around the table and get everybody's opinion or position on what should be done, what happens is each board member has now declared a position publicly. And a public declaration brings consistency into play. I've now staked out a position, and I've told everybody what my position is, and it changes the individual psychology to one of defending the position, attempting to find reasons why it's a good position, and then the confirmation bias comes in. We start ignoring information that might contradict what we believe is best, and we start overvaluing information that might support our position, and... The next thing that can happen is you end up with a numerical majority and minority. And if you're in that numerical minority, it's an extremely difficult position to be in. We're going around the table and people are saying, well, I like plan A and these are my reasons why. The next person, I also like plan A. These are my reasons why. The third person, same thing. By the time it comes around to you and you're actually thinking, you know what, plan B or plan C might be better, you might start questioning yourself. You might start wondering, well... If all these other smart people think plan A is best, maybe I don't understand this information the same way they do. Maybe I've missed something. Maybe they don't want to hear me say that plan B or C is best. Maybe they're going to be disappointed if they hear that. Maybe they will roll their eyes and question whether or not I've done my preparation. The numerical minority position is a really tough one to be in. People ask me, well, what can we do about that? I said, well, don't take positions. The simplest thing is to do not start a decision process with a poll. Because if you can avoid public positions, then people won't face these difficulties of feeling commitment to their position, being part of a numerical minority or majority. And that sounds pretty simple, but it's amazing how much the chair has to pay attention to stop people from doing that. Everybody will come into the meeting with a position. We humans are, it's extremely difficult to not have a position when you come into a meeting. We all have an idea of, you know, let's say it's a human resource choice problem. We, we need to find a new, you know, vice president of, and the board has been asked to pipe in on this by the CEO. Most people are going to have some idea of who they think is best, but they need to keep that to themselves to avoid all the pitfalls of the positionality and then the, the kind of contest of positions and the 
the changes in individual and group psychology that happen because of those declared positions. What we're looking for is criteria first. What are the criteria that we would use to evaluate who this new vice president needs to be? Once we've agreed on those and how much each of them is worth, then we start sharing information about what will this person be doing, who are the candidates that we've been asked to review, what do they bring, and we start just sharing information, anything that, that we can bring. And here again, the chair has an important role because there will be particular experts at the table of subject matter expertise, they'll have experiential expertise, and the chair needs to pull that out. And it's best done by asking questions that, that leave a variety of possible answers, all of which would be appropriate, or a spectrum of, of answers that that person could provide. I'll try and give an example. If you, if you ask a closed question, closed question would sound like, well, do you agree with everybody else or not? And in that case, the, the director would, would only have really have two choices and might even think, well, the way they asked that question, there's probably only one real choice. Whereas if you ask, from your perspective, as a, I'll use another example, as a social media marketing expert, what does this candidate look like to you? Or what does this situation look like to you? And then the person can say, well, you know, from my perspective as a social media marketing expert, here's what I see, here's what I think, and reasons why. That's something that the chair needs to make sure that he or she is in control of as well. I appreciate you sharing some of the solutions to the pitfalls and traps that boards are sometimes facing. What are some of the keys for all board members to ensure the group sparks constructive dialogue? I mean, if you if you want to go to each of the individuals, they need to believe in the value of their own information. Sometimes this will be referred to, and it's it's often done you know, in a somewhat derogatory way. Well, you have to have courage. Courage is overrated when you're in a very strong situation and you feel like the numerical majority is bearing down on you. It's a very difficult thing to do. You, you still have to feel safe enough to be able to share your information, and you have to know that the, the board chair and the other people in the room are going to support you. So this is, this is around decisions and discussions about how important process is. The chair won't be able to do it by him or herself. They will need help. They'll need everybody to agree and and commit to the importance of a rigorous decision process where nobody's going to declare a position until we've you know, identified and nailed down our criteria and we've shared some information. You know, After we've done that, then positions will come out as we go through the heavy work of figuring out which alternative might be best. So the individuals need to, they need to support each other in making sure that the other people in the room feel as though it's, it's a good thing for them to do to disagree with the group. They need to perhaps assign uh, the role of a devil's advocate. And here's a nice tip for you. Please don't assign it to the same person every time. It's a, a difficult role to play, and it should be shared so that everybody gets a sense of how important it is and how difficult it is. And if one person is doing it all the time, that person might get uh, subconsciously labeled as not a team player. So you know, individual initiative to make sure that you value your own information and you don't censor yourself. Also, be very, very honest about um, whether or not the, the criteria makes sense to you so that, you know, if you have other information, the criteria can be reviewed and adjusted or even just the weights adjusted so that you can do that. As a group of people, you have to demonstrate that you welcome expertise. Now, this, there's a fine line here. You don't want to be welcoming special interests. You don't want to be welcoming people acting against the criteria. But we have to respect that the folks who are on our boards are there for a reason. It's usually because they know something we don't, or they have some experience that, that we as other individual members on a board do not. 
And that's that's why we put boards together in the first place, to get the collective wisdom from all the varieties of expertise. You know, we want engineers and designers. We want marketing people. We want finance folks. We want public relations. We want social media marketing experts on our board so that we can you know, cover off all of the various roles and responsibilities that uh, that the governing body of the board has. Wow. I appreciate all the great advice you're offering here, John. And linked to this conversation, John, what does underperformance look like for a director on your board? And what are some ways to aid underperforming board members? The most direct appearance or manifestation of underperforming board members are people who are actually underperforming. If they're not preparing and they're not providing the, the sort of effort and expertise that they're supposed to, it may have just been a bad selection uh, process to get that person on the board, or you know, they, they just simply may not be engaged as much as they need to be. That's usually the simplest. And you know what's to be done about that? Uh, it's a very difficult position, but you know, coaching, um, perhaps finding committee membership of something that would really interest them are solutions to that one. But more typically, what I see in my client organization boards are people who appear to be underperforming, but it's not individual, it is more situational. They find themselves or they perceive the situation and the context that they're in as being very difficult for themselves. Yeah, and the solutions to that are, are around a process and a methodology that they can rely on, that they can expect that the chair will enforce and make sure that, that is used every time that are, there are high-stakes decisions in the board. This is somebody who might not be speaking up very much. They might be somebody who is, whose body language indicates they're not engaged because they're leaning back or their arms are folded. They are engaged. They're thinking. They're, they're trying to decide whether or not they should say something, but they might appear to be someone who's not helping, who's not, not performing as the rest of the directors think they should or, or the chair thinks they should. And the solutions to that are, again, you know, the establishment of a relied upon methodology for making sure that information gets shared and, you know, a safe place to, to say something that might be controversial or that might uh, open up people's minds a bit and, and disagree with what seems to be a growing consensus. And a false consensus is a terrible trap on a board, and it happens quite often. You know, everybody thinks everybody else wants to do plan A. Well, no one individually thinks plan A is really a good idea. They all think everybody else thinks it's a good idea. Now, if somebody is not speaking up, somebody's not um, actively engaging, I'll put some responsibility on the chair's shoulders for rectifying that situation. That person may need you may need to have a private conversation and remind them, look, this is this is a safe place. Your status on this board is guaranteed with your membership, and we want to hear what you have to say, and we want to hear if, if you find parts of what we seem to be moving toward that aren't good. You don't have to say that you know this entire plan is garbage, but you need to say you know most of this plan is pretty good, but and it's the but that's going to add value to the rest of that discussion. If you have some particular expertise and you can see risks that other people can't, or you can see potential disasters that other people can't, we need to hear about it. And then the board chair has to back that up with action in the boardroom by perhaps, uh, I call it um, warm calling some of those underperforming directors. And what I mean by warm calling, you don't want to cold call them and surprise them and say, okay, tell us what you really think. But you warm call them by suggesting during one of the breaks. Now, just want to let you know, I, I really want the rest of the board to hear concerns you have about plan a and i'm, I'm going to ask you and i'll try and ask you in a you know in a, a manner that will give you lots of leeway as to how you answer it i'm going to ask you about your concerns about plan a or what you think about the various parts of plan a and i and i you need to hear the truth so that that person 
feels a little bit more empowered, knows that the, they have the chair's support, and you know starts to believe that the board does need to hear what they have to say. So the underperformers who appear to be underperforming, you know, they might just be thinking really hard and silently, but we need to hear their thoughts. We need to get those out on the table. And I, I differentiate those as, as I did at the beginning of this this portion from the people who are truly underperforming, who aren't prepared, who aren't doing the work required to be a good member on a board. John, I appreciate your perspective, and I think our listeners will as well. Now, Q's in partnership with Rotman University and some of its faculty, including yourself, have teamed up to offer a very unique and professional development opportunity. It's been highly successful and well-received. We're talking about the Q's Governance Leadership Institute, GLI. It takes place in June in Toronto at the Joseph L. Rotman School of Management, June 10th through the 13th. At the closing of this podcast episode, we will give you the address so that you can find out more information and register for it. In addition to that, what's new this year in 2018 Coming up very, very soon, and you can still sign up for it, is Accused Governance Leadership Institute stateside. It's going to be held at Florida International University April 15th to the 18th. It's coming up very soon. I will also share information about that program and how you can register at the closing of this episode. So, John, for those listeners who want to know a little bit more about GLI, this is a great opportunity. Can you tell them about it? First of all, James, thank you for mentioning those. I truly look forward to traveling down to Miami. I'll, I'll be in both mornings of the Institute sharing some of the stuff that I, that I want to get across to our participants. And, and I also welcome anybody to come up to the beautiful city of Toronto and enjoy you know, springtime here in Toronto. And uh, we promise and always deliver top-notch experience for folks. The participants are generally people who are either on boards of credit unions or are acting on committees of credit unions. Sometimes we have you know, senior employees, CEOs and, and VPs of the larger credit unions who are you know, active board committee members as well. And it's a little bit above what I'd call the, you know, the basics or the essentials of governance. It's more into some of the, the questions that we've talked about so far in this podcast. How do we get to those good processes? What are some of the things to look out for and some of the danger points and some of the good practices we can use? We also talk about the roles and responsibilities and the, the legal ramifications, the fiduciary duties that we have. And we've, you know, on our staff here, we've got some experts in that. And, you know, I've mentioned a couple times the idea of trying to get value from the kind of cognitive or experiential diversity on your board. And we have an expert in that who will make sure that, that we do a good job in pulling these sorts of things out as well. So for anybody who's going to be involved with a board, specifically designed to train people who are going to be acting on boards, and uh, you know, the reviews that we've received in the first 10 years or so that we've done this have been tremendous. Everybody uh, who participates takes parts of it away as very high value you added for them and the rest as either confirmation or good stuff that they can remember and use as well. So I appreciate you bringing those up and I look forward to, to seeing any of our listeners there. John, thank you for providing such great insight and perspective and for sharing a little bit what GLI may be like for our listeners. We appreciate your time. All right, thank you very much, James. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking cues on the go. Once again, there are two opportunities in 2018 to attend the Q's Governance Leadership Institute. GLI at Florida International University will take place April 15th through the 18th. To find out more and register, visit cues.org slash GLIUSA to learn more. 
GLI at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, takes place June 10th through the 13th. For more information about that program and register, visit cues.org slash GLI. For more talent development content from Cues, visit cues.org now, C-U-E-S dot O-R-G. If you're a Cues member, you have access to invaluable membership benefits to further enhance your development. Visit cues.org slash membership to learn more. Cues is an international credit union association. Our mission is to educate and develop credit union CEOs, directors, and future leaders. To learn how Cues can help you realize your potential, Visit cues.org today.